Welcome to The Conversation, a podcast about technology, instructional design, and the learning sciences. We have two sets of readings, one from Wiggins and Mateague again, and that's focused on criteria and validity, and then one from Rothwell, which talks about different learning technologies and instructional design. But before we get to that, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, so my name is Brooke, and I graduated from Adelphi undergrad with an English degree. This is my second semester as a graduate student in that program, and I'm currently a student teacher at Francis Lewis High School. So my name is Chrissy. I went to Adelphi for undergrad for uh, environmental studies, and I'm actually nearing the end of my educational technology master's degree, um, which is scary that it went by this fast, but it's been awesome. (laughs) Um, And I currently work for the Broadway Green Alliance. Oh, nice. Well, what's that? It's a really interesting organization that basically works directly with um, Broadway and the theater community and its patrons to be more environmentally friendly. Um, and ironically, we use social media to reach a lot of people. So this is a really great topic for me for this week. So hmm. really exciting. <laughs> I didn't know them to be a group that is known to not be environmentally friendly, I guess. Yeah, well, luckily, there's a lot of um, uh, initiatives on Broadway that keep it green. So this week's Wiggins and Mateague reading is kind of a carryover from last week's discussion of assessment. We read about criteria and validity. And then you have the Rothwell reading on different instructional technologies and what things you can do with these different technologies, different kind of interactions, different kind of instructional design models and approaches. But let's start with the Wiggins and Mateague reading. What did you think about this reading? I've actually been focusing a lot on feedback lately and giving formative feedback in my observations and student teaching. So I found the article to be really helpful in kind of staying away from the holistic approach because I feel like my cooperative teacher right now really focuses on giving an overall impression and not giving too much feedback. Um, She really harps on the idea that if we give too much feedback, we can either feed a student's ego too much or we can actually damage it um, if they feel as if they're not giving enough. So I'm glad that this article kind of fought for the other side because I kind of believe in that more analytical rubric. Yeah. Um, And I also think it's important that sometimes students themselves are given an opportunity to kind of design a rubric so they understand where the teacher's coming from and they can assess themselves and their peers. For example, like a fishbowl discussion, within that, students are able to kind of monitor their assessment and monitor what they're doing and how they're engaging. So just creating like a checklist that they understand, I feel like that'll help them understand why they're being assessed and how they're being assessed more. Yeah, that's definitely very helpful. And it seems like, I mean, learning about the holistic versus um, analytic rubric system was really, really cool. Um, And I think that in, Erin, in your classes, you use more analytic style rubrics, which is really helpful for me because, you know, as the semester progresses, I'm able to kind of track, okay, what did I do um, well on last time, but what could I improve on for the next assignment? So it's been really helpful for me in that way. Yeah, I think the analytic rubrics are really helpful as well. I mean, they're definitely a lot more work up front to developing them. And there are things that I need to revise over time and decide what are the different criteria and levels and what goes into them. But I do find that over time, these are more useful than 
having just a checklist, although that has its place, maybe for a self-assessment, I think the rubrics with the different layers are more useful. And actually, I have a question based on what, Brooke, you said about your teacher. I was curious about whether your teacher, other than what she said about not feeding the student's ego, whether she had a particular rationale or philosophy that she was building this on. I don't think she necessarily has a distinct philosophy, but she just doesn't like to give too much feedback in the beginning because she thinks that students will rely on it. Uh, kind of like that paying attention to correctness part. She doesn't want to pay attention too much to that, but rather have the student think for themselves. Because when the teacher is kind of giving the answers right away, there's no scaffolding. And when the teacher's doing all the talking, the students aren't doing any of the thinking. Because when you're doing the talking, you're doing the thinking. She knows she knows that my teacher knows she knows the answers, but she wants to see if the students do it. So she'll give feedback. She'll try to do more of a general uh, single score, but um, I have observed other teachers who do more of an analytic uh, rubric. So I think that both definitely work if you have a certain approach, but in my opinion, I can't see myself doing a holistic rubric um, just because I think it is important to go into detail sometimes, maybe not all the time, because I think her approach is more beneficial in like a discussion setting, getting the students to think and talk amongst each other and spark that conversation. But I don't know about an actual formal assessment feedback, because usually when there's not a lot of detail on the feedback, students just don't really pay attention. If there's like a few words on it, they're like, oh, I did well, and they'll throw the paper out. But if there's a lot of detail, they'll actually pay attention to it and try to um, revise it. That kind of falls in line with one of my questions, which was, how do you feel about the pass-fail model of grading? Because Mm -hmm. I feel like there could be some benefits of it, but ultimately, you're not really giving structured feedback to the students. So it kind of does account in a way for general understanding, but then again, you're not really giving the feedback. And I don't know if you think grading somebody like one to 100 or A through F, whatever, if you think that gives them a better idea of where they land. I've never really been a fan of pass-fail, um, even when it's been like, whether it's higher education or college, when it comes down to the even smaller classes, I don't like that because I don't feel like I've actually done anything. I kind of just feel like I passed it. Like I didn't really put a whole, even if I did put a whole lot of work in, I feel like it's not being recognized. Mm-hmm. Like, it feels productive. And some people like it because it gets rid of that letter grade or number grade that students find kind of scary yeah like daunting (laughs) yeah i feel like it's kind of important though because maybe not necessarily an informative assessment uh, as opposed to the end of the year but it's important to keep track of where you are and like why you are there and how Mm -hmm. you get to the next step Mm -hmm. focusing on the next step is more important than focusing on the grade itself so i can see why people do like a pass fail like not give a grade on a formative assessment, but when it comes to like the more summative assessments, I think it is important to make it very structured and to break it down into those increments like the rubric. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, that makes sense because otherwise your A to C grade would be lumped into a pass, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then exactly. everyone else has failed, but then if you put in more work, it should be different from someone who put in much less work. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And rec- recognition is such a important part to 
learning anything because mm-hmm. I feel like if you're not recognized enough, you're not going to feel appreciated. And that's a huge motivator for some students who right. might not feel recognized outside of the classroom. So that's another huge reason. I'm glad you brought that up. Mm-hmm. Chrissy, I know you're not um, going to be a, a teacher, as you said, but mm-hmm. um, I am curious if you were to put yourself in the shoes as a student and then as your experience as a professor, uh, how do you guys think that we can balance giving feedback that won't feed a student's ego too much or take away from their ego? Like, are there certain words or key phrases you think we should avoid? Or um, do either of you have a personal example of when you either experienced feedback that did such or gave feedback maybe to a peer or something that did such? I'm kind of just curious um, how you guys think is kind of like the perfect balance, um, some keywords and phrases of good feedback. Yeah, I don't know if I necessarily have any specific keywords or ideas in that way, but I know one interesting grading system that I've been exposed to um, was peer feedback. And it had to do, like when I was presenting once, the task was to present like a seven minute presentation. And then the teacher was going to be grading our speak on was given out to the entire class. So essentially everybody was grading everybody the same way that the teacher was grading. And that was actually really helpful the feedback was then shared with me. So it was kind of a really dynamic way for me to understand how the way that I was presenting appealed or resonated with a number of different people. Any chances to incorporate peer feedback is really important because it kind of opens the floodgates for like more feedback. Um, Maybe somebody picked up on something that another person didn't pick up on, or maybe even the instructor didn't pick up on. So I think ultimately that really does help. It did help me a lot. When you said feed ego, do you know what you're or what you mean or what your teacher meant um so some students will and I, I've witnessed it in the classroom they'll think that they are like the number one student and they know everything just because they will get called on the most because they volunteer the most for example and they always have an answer ready so instead of like giving too much positive feedback mm. she'll try to give more general neutral feedback now to kind of bring that ego down so they don't think they know everything already because then you kind of get that fixed mindset like I don't have room to learn anything else I'm good the way I am and I know more than my peers so like I'll just help them but if they're kind of brought back down to earth a little bit then they'll be able to develop more of a growth mindset again and want to actually learn more not just think they assume they already know it that's really interesting it's almost like some kind of mind game that you're playing (laughs) that's really i have to admit i don't really i'm less concerned about over inflating someone's ego like i typically don't Mm. wouldn't say like this is the best thing ever um i think (laughs) i mean the other extreme is you don't want to kind of make it so negative that you make them feel demotivated so i think usually i go for something like depending on the assignment, but usually I go for something like what I liked about it, if there's anything you can improve on, just Mm -hmm. really concrete stuff. And I guess I don't really think about ego that much in terms of, am I worried about this person? I don't know, taking it or feel like they have understood everything. I mean, I'm teaching adults, so I think that also makes a difference. I think adults may be able to handle feedback better. I can definitely see why it's very different with like adults than the um, the adolescents, because I've had some professors tell me that when they they've te- they've taught both, and 
they'll say that even saying something like, oh, you're a bright student will like boost their ego through the roof and it can be interesting. That's that you, what you're saying. That just reminded me of um, like those bumper stickers that, that say like my kid is on the honor roll. <laughs> yeah. And I've never thought about how like things like that could like affect someone's ego and learning and maybe, I don't know. Yeah. I've never thought about it that way. Yeah. It's crazy to think about because they are still like developing their sense of identity. And, mm-hmm. like, we are too, obviously, but it's, it's very different. And it's, mm-hmm. it's crazy to think how different it can affect someone who's just a few years younger than myself even right but even in that example I guess I guess I wouldn't say you're a bright student I would say that's an Mm. interesting comment or that's a very yeah you know you're not directly saying that it's the person maybe that would be the distinguished the kind of the wordsmithing part of it yeah you kind of get used to or you kind of think start to think about these things or become kind of second nature I guess you could always set it up too in the way that like yep, you're doing well, there's always more to learn, that kind Mm -hmm. of thing too. So like, so as to encourage everybody to continue learning and continue exploring this idea that maybe they think they have down, um, because we can always learn more about everything. Some of it is also just with wording when I, with, for example, um, if English is not the first language, I, I try to make sure that I don't throw in a phrase in there that is potentially confusing. And I guess the other thing is also not to overwhelm them with things. Like when I was in grad school, like training to to become an educator, um, one of the things we were taught, and I believe this is something they also teach at writing centers because I have friends in writing centers about in terms of the next steps, like these other things you can work on. You don't want to give them like 10 things to work on. You want mm-hmm. to give them like the three most important things. And if they can just work mm-hmm. on those three things, that's great. But if you give them like a list of things, then it becomes really... You know, again, demotivating, you know. Right. Yeah. It's definitely a strategy to feedback. I have a question about standardized testing, actually, having to do with validity. So essentially, my question is, do you think that standardized tests like the SAT really are a valid way of assessing understanding? Because I feel that it's honestly, in my opinion, too general and people can be penalized and because it's a huge um, factor in getting into college. So some people that just are general, not generally not good at test taking could demonstrate the general abilities in a different setting. Um, So Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you feel, number one, if you think standardized tests are valid or if you think there's a better way to account for this kind of um, huge test at the end of high school. When I first came into college uh, to pursue education, I was very against standardized testing because Mm -hmm. I've always been really bad at it. Um, But learning how to because I also went to high school out of state so I didn't have to take regents or anything I just took the SATs Um, so when I came here and learned about regents and stuff and everyone was saying you have to teach your students how to prepare for these tests on Mm -hmm. top of or AP exams also weren't offered in my high school so I had to learn all of these learning how to yeah learning how to like integrate them was really overwhelming but I realized that if we're focusing on the standards um within our lessons anyway, those standards kind of are reflected in the standardized testing. So if you can teach them through UDL in a lesson plan how to, for example, let's say the standard for English, whatever grade is to listen and collaborate with others. If you're teaching them how to uh, listen and use context clues or whatever the standard may be, then they can use that same standard that they 
have un learned to understand in that lesson plan in the SAT as like their summative assessment at the end of the year. So if they're learning how to do it in the class, no matter what the material is, they'll be able to perform the same thing on the SATs with a different short story or whatever they're analyzing. And it's true, like some people are just really bad at standardized testing, right. self-included. But I think there's definitely a way to prepare students um, to take them so that they can get a good grade by reflecting upon what they did well uh, prior in lessons prior to that test coming up. Yeah, that's a good idea. I think it should be more normed. I felt that I wasn't prepared nearly enough for my SAT. Mm -hmm. um, I felt like it kind of, I was kind of blindsided. So I think that could be really interesting. Yeah. I mean, it does come down also to different teaching styles and different subjects since it's so many subjects mm -hmm. in one. But I think for That's myself, true. for English, it's a lot easier because it's just identifying yeah. and um, vocabulary and whatnot. So I think it's a little bit easier with English. But, yeah, there's a more of an opportunity to get creative with the English component, which honestly was yeah. the easiest part for me. I mean, I'm personally not a fan of standardized testing. <laughs> I think even with SAT, I mean, you asked about validity. I think it has... It's valid for something, but it, I don't think it necessarily tells you everything you need to know about, mm -hmm. like, I mean, SAT is for college entrance exam, right? So about a college student, which is why SAT is only one thing you look at. And also I think universities, more, more and more universities are now are de-emphasizing the SAT, right? You know, I don't know. It's, it's a huge component of some scholarship models, which is like, you have to get this on the SAT to be considered for scholarship for a lot of schools. And mm. I just feel like that's, not serving a huge number of people that do have the ability, but perhaps didn't show it because of the way they tested. I mean, that's a good point. I think these groups or whoever's giving out these scholarships should, should maybe also start thinking about looking at more things. Um, yeah. I mean, it, basically assessment is, I mean, a lot of what we're talking about um, in this class is kind of like a research in the sense that you are, as an instructor, you're designing something and you're the assessment is the research part of whether the student understood something. And I think it was last week in the Wiggins reading, there was the continuum of assessments or something like that, right? Where it says you have, you know, you have informal checks and then you have quizzes and discussion and then you have like a final test, that kind of thing. And all of these are data points. And the more diverse and variety of assessment you have, the more accurate you're going to be. Just like in a research study, if you have mixed methods or you have a lot of data and you know a lot of data points, the more accurate your findings are going to be, right? So that's why the kind of that's one of my issues with standardized testing. It's like if, if you put too much emphasis on that, then you only get a very specific data point. Um, like mm -hmm. in, I also studied under a professor who who did research on children and reading tests. This is a great book called Children and Reading Tests by Clifford Hill and Eric Larson. And he was showing, these were like, I think they were sixth graders or third graders, one or the other, giving them just reading passages and then multiple choices and mm -hmm. having them talk through their choices and showing how much of a cultural bias there is between the test and the interpretation. And so mm -hmm. showing that students who were reading um, the passage were actually often having a very, like a much more nuanced or sophisticated understanding of the passage, but the multiple choice was not able to unpack that. They, they, they require that the test taker go for the simpler answer. 
So I think that that's kind of the issue with that kind of test. Like I would use it, you've taken the informal checks, the quizzes where you're mm-hmm. not graded, you know, other than for extra credit, that kind of thing. Like I would use it for right. that because I think that is helpful. Um, mm-hmm. But in terms of having it count as a big part of your grade, I'm less inclined to do that myself. Even just like an exit slip, like you do the exit slips, um, I think it's important to know that they absorb something of the mm-hmm. lesson mm-hmm. Right. so that you can revisit it and personalize it to the student. But uh, even like pop quizzes, some people think it's important just to get everybody back on track when they're um, <laughs> yeah. getting all over the quiz. place. <laughs> yeah, but it, even that can be served as like a checks for understanding. It doesn't necessarily have to tie into the grade. Right. Because um, so many people will feel, so many students will feel that it's being used against them. And that's the only reason it's being put in place. But if they see it as more as an opportunity to just put them back on the track that they need to be on if they're getting a little out of topic, then I think it's a it's a good way. It's a meaningful way to use it. Brooke, you had another question in rubrics, didn't you? On the topic of the same uh, reading, reading the Wiggins and T- McTee reading, um, I was curious which facets you guys found that demonstrate the student understanding to be either most important, or do you guys think that maybe none of them have a president's over each other. Um, it was that figure 8.2 facet related criteria mm-hmm. um, section. That was a really awesome section for me. Um, I think, honestly, it's super hard to choose just one. I don't think I could choose one as the most important. Um, but I'm inclined to say that the first three facets, explanation, interpretation, and application, could potentially be the three most important or the three that clearly show the student has understood something, because if they can explain it, they learned it. If they can interpret, that means they're on their way to understanding. But if they can apply it, that means that they probably understand it. But of course, like perspective, empathy, and self-knowledge are also important. So I don't know if I could choose one or three. I mean, it kind of depends on the subject, but I would say, and there's also like a quantity and quality question. So like, I think you can argue that self-knowledge is the most important in that if students are able to be constantly aware of their learning, like where they are, what they understand, what they don't understand, that's really important because it, it kind of helps them map their own learning. That's true. So that's a quality issue, but that doesn't mean you should have tons of self-aware or, you know, metacognitive stuff in your class. Um, like <laughs> yeah. in terms of how much time they spend on each thing, I would say maybe the other things but then the self-knowledge, the facet six, the self-knowledge could still be more important. And I think one of the things that as a, as like an educator um, or even in, in a workplace situation, you, you are needing to balance between these six facets and trying to toy around with the proportions and what you want to emphasize of the other. I, I also think they're all equally important, but kind of like what uh, Chrissy was saying, the first three show the understanding of the material and then as you were saying mm-hmm. depending on the lesson it the student needs to focus more on like the metacognitive questions it really just depends on what they're covering but I also viewed it kind of as like a lesson plan outline uh, I feel like the explanation interpretation and application are more for the actual activity and mini lesson and motivation portion whereas the perspective and uh, facet five and six are more dispositional. 
So they're all equally as important. They just are threaded throughout the lesson in different spots. So yeah. Um, now, would you say that empathy, if, if so, if you were to use this, as you said, you would use this as like a um, guide for making a lesson plan, potentially even a rubric, would you say that empathy would, like that component of grading somebody or, or facilitating an assignment could be the, the peer feedback? Yeah, definitely. Because if you're, let's say that they had to do a Socratic seminar or like I was talking about a fishbowl discussion before, so something yeah. similar to that. If they are engaging in a conversation or even if the activity isn't involved in conversation, but they're doing like partner work, Mm -hmm. you can still observe and see if they are being open minded and receptive to different like diverse perspectives. Because if they're sitting there like closed minded, not really um, reflecting or uh, absorbing what other people have to say and just thinking about it, then that can be damaging and they're not achieving the disposition that's uh, aligned with that lesson. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how I took it. But if you're ensuring that the questions that you're giving the students to ask one another are metacognitive, uh, for example, in itself, then they're more likely going to achieve that disposition and pertaining to the text, achieve their understanding of it. So when it comes to the fourth, fifth, and sixth facet, I feel like it really just has to do with ensuring they're getting that partner work whole class work and individual work so that they're reflecting and they're getting different perspectives in there. Yeah, I think that's great. That's a great model. I mean, it's definitely easier for English. I guess with math, even if they're doing like a vertical learning type of activity and they're collaborating that way, you could even probably do empathy there if someone's teaching them a new way that they might not have understood with the teacher. They can even get the dispositions in there. So you it is easier with English a lot, so right. uh, a lot easier, but it can still be done. I thought, I guess, if you do like a productive failure approach to math, then I think empathy would ha- would have a role as well. Yeah, definitely. So before we move away from rubrics, are there anything? I think there was. Oh, I was curious as to how you. Uh, we kind of touched upon it before when Christy had asked, but how you design your rubrics um, to ensure that you're making judgments on each different category, like the different parts of performance. How would you plan to alter um, a rubric uh, in the future if you gave a rubric that uh, the criteria had been met by the student, but they didn't necessarily demonstrate their understanding of the topic? So like they did something, but they don't know why they did it kind of thing. Yeah. Hmm. How would you measure if they understood it or not. I mean, I, th- I do think the rubrics that I use typically do need to be, I revise them um, constantly, especially if I notice that there's a gap that you talked about where mm-hmm. there is a, some gap, like, uh, uh, like you mentioned. I think that's kind of where I would think about how to reword it. I thought when I saw the question, I thought you were asking, like, how do I start, where do I start with the rubric? And, oh. and and I was going to say, because it's related, I was going to say, I usually start with what's good, that, no, the good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would say the good might be if someone has done something, and then the excellent would be if they go beyond that and are able to demonstrate a deeper understanding, rationale, that kind of thing. Sometimes I do it that way. So yeah, that's, I don't know if that addresses that exactly, but it, you do have to, I think definitely with, like with anything with instructional design, you do need to keep revising it. Um, over time. That's why I think it's important to, uh, well, at least I would encourage people to kind of 
come up with their own rubrics instead of finding pre-made ones because it yeah. kind of kind of forces you as the instructor to think about it. If you get it from somewhere, I think it's possible that you stop, you know, you might kind of say, assume that it's valid and assume that it's, it's fine. And it might be fine for the person who designed it, but like you, you're a different person. And so I think that is also something to consider. All right, let's talk about the other one then, the Rothwell. So on page 109 um, of the Rothwell reading, uh, they start to talk about the different kinds of technology that is used to create kind of like either an immersive environment or more um, shallow environment for students to learn online. And the one that jumped out to me the most was the social media and Moodle comparison, mm. just because we use Moodle. So I just wanted to ask you guys, um, what do you think about using something such a, a platform such as Facebook uh, to potentially replace or influence a platform like Moodle? Do you think that social media is beneficial or do you think it'll kind of take away from the experience? I actually have a pretty strong opinion about Facebook and I, I put that in my notes. Um, I don't honestly like Facebook is such a personal social media application where like everybody puts all their business. That's a general statement, but like everybody puts all their business online on Facebook. So the thought of using Facebook to interact with like a teacher, I think is just totally unappealing to a lot of people, myself included. And this, it's so funny because before I read this article, I was talking about the case study idea that I have in the, in the slides for this week. And I was basically, so I used to work hourly for the Learning and Writing Center. And the task was to get students involved outside of the classroom on social media. And it, it proved to be very difficult to do. And I, and I just don't have an answer as to why. And I think it has something to do with this very personal platform that is Facebook. So I don't think Facebook is, is the platform for this. I definitely get where you're coming from, especially because, well, if I were to use Facebook, if I had to, I would definitely ensure that they're making original accounts so that they're not getting distracted with like separate personal life social networking. But even then, there's still so many distractions and advertisements is like a huge issue with mm -hmm. Facebook right now. Agreed. Um, and getting everyone into like a political frenzy. I would just want to stay as far away from that <laughs> as possible. Oh my God. Unless I were teaching like a politics class or something, I can't see myself using something like that. Yeah, I mean, I totally understand that the portal itself is appealing and kind of mimics that of like a, a forum. Um, I totally get that, but at this, at you know, at that at that extent, you might as well just create a Google portal because everybody. Well, we at Adelphi use Google Suite for the email system, so we have the ability to create that kind of portal. Um, but if we're creating a portal, we might as well use Moodle. So that's my opinion with that kind of use of social media for engagement in, cl in the classroom. Um, but I do feel like Twitter is a really good social media tool um, to use for education. And we used Twitter actually in um, Dr. Grand's class, uh, the digital literacies class in the spring. It's le I think Twitter is also way less personal. You can kind of like, for lack of a better term, like hide behind your Twitter account. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Twitter is basically at this point, just like a fact sharing and an information sharing platform. Um, and I think the ability to share information on Twitter with the hashtag 
feature is really beneficial? Well, first of all, if you use Facebook, get an ad blocker. Um, <laughs> get rid, get Ooh, that's rid a of point. all the ads. The Rothwell reading is typically more for organizations or companies, let's say. So they're not like a K-12. Oops. They're not K-12 and they're not university, which where universities will have access to Moodle or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you're thinking just of a company that might not want to have and maintain a, an L- LMS, I think a case could be made. I obviously I'm hesitant for the reasons that you, uh, you mentioned. I was kind of reflecting on the way I use Facebook, which is also there's a Facebook group that I belong to. And usually when I go to Facebook, that's the first thing I go to. I stay in the group and I don't look at anything else. Um, mm-hmm. Not that my, you know, not that my feed has any weird political stuff or anything like that. But I, so I think it is possible. And I think the other thing, and this is in the, Chrissy, just so you know, Brooke is in the digital literacy class that I'm teaching. And we're also, oh, we're, awesome. we're talking about social media. Yeah. And um, nice. we just had a debate about whether social media should have a place. I think that's <laughs> Oh my God. I'm so interested in this. I, th- I love social media so much. Obviously, I use it for informal <laughs> yeah. reasons, but I'm so curious how, yeah, obviously that's one of my questions. So <laughs> I think in one of the readings, they said that you can have a pretty siloed Facebook page so that people you're interacting with don't necessarily see the rest of your feed. Mm. I think that is possible. At least that's what I remember from the reading. So if you're worried about other people seeing your stuff, I think there are ways of going around that. Um, Interesting. In terms of using social media, in a learning context, like I don't use it. I haven't kind of find a space for it. I think Slack somehow sometimes yeah. does some of that. Although mm-hmm. I don't push that very well. But I was thinking if I was to use it, I would probably reach out to another class that is teaching digital literacies in another part of the world, let's say Europe, because I know that they do really interesting things in, in terms of digital literacies, or even two, two countries, and then say, I'm teaching a course, do you want to have certain weeks where we have a, like a shared topic? And during that week, our students talk to each other through Twitter using the same hashtag and have a conversation about whatever media literacy. Um, oh, that's really interesting. I think that would be a really interesting way of using social media. Yes. And that, I don't know if you, do you know Dr. Thornburg? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so he, I was in uh, the Levermore Global Scholars Program with him and he was really, really interested in um, incorporating Second Life, I think it was called, mm-hmm. um, where essentially that is exactly what he was trying to do mm-hmm. by connecting the class here with, um, I think we had a really good relationship with the American College of Norway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think that was the other end of you know exactly what we were just talking about so that could be another really cool um use of social media yeah because the hashtags also let you kind of filter things in a way that wouldn't be very hard to filter especially if you kind of create one that's very unique i mean i think this is an example where you're not using a technology just for the sake of it you're using it because that is actually the best way to use it because you can't like in moodle you can't well you can but it will be very complicated adding 30 other students from another part of the country into right that creates very a lot more problems than just using twitter or whatever social media so i think usually when you think about what technologies use that's always good to think but is this the best thing to do and why am i doing it you know in your experience what has been the most successful use of social media in the classroom or like if you not in the classroom, if it's like an if you've seen like a like a company use social media for something really useful, like what what has that been? In a formal teaching experience, yeah. Um, I mean, in the digital literacy class, we're teach we we just read an article, a recent article, in fact, on Twitter. I can send it to you. 
Um, yeah, they actually they've sure. provided some interesting instances. I don't, Brooke, I don't know if you have, have any thoughts. Like the one that I that sticks to me is when a class was using a hashtag and that somehow got experts outside involved into yes. the conversation. Yes. Kind of thing. Cool. It's really it's really interesting for me. I think instances like that are are really good to read. I don't know how often it happens though. I've totally experienced that when I was actually in the digital literacies class, we created a Twitter account and our task was to tweet like what two, two to three times a week about something relevant or something that interested us. Mm. Um, and I know how to use Twitter. So I was like using hashtags and like researched a bunch of hashtags that were used specifically in the educational technology community mm. by pretty much professional people or people just in the industry who aren't in school. Mm. And I remember getting a lot of, tweets and retweets and comments, not a lot, maybe like two, but for me, that was a lot um, on, from people saying, oh, this is really great. Check this out. So I think, yeah, like you said, that's a really great way to actually make solid connections with people mm. from all over. Even what you guys were discussing before, I know you had mentioned the Dr. Thornburg, like the global communication, anything related to it, I feel like it's a really, like, obviously you have to be a little cautious and maybe make separate profiles so that there's not too many distractions going on. But I think that's a really good idea, mm-hmm. especially just to communicate globally and get networking in there. Yeah. Cause that's something that could last outside of the classroom too, for the students if they wanted to pursue it afterward. Yep. Uh, Chrissy, does the instructor monitor or address or t- talk about these hashtags of uh, these, these conversations or, or was it- I don't think the hashtag specifically um, I think ultimately the goal was to connect with each other on Twitter oh. um, and yeah, to share interesting things with each other. We had one um, hashtag for the class where we would all be able to like connect and, um, and look at the stuff that we shared through. Oh. Um, but I decided to, you know, use other hashtags as well. I, mean, I was thinking like if it, as, as an instructor, if you want to monitor it somehow, there's an application called Zapier, Z-A-P-I-E-R, that is like an automated thing. It's like a thing that plugs in with any number of apps. And I think you can have one that tracks a certain hashtag. So if you have a class specific hashtag, you can say anytime someone uses this hashtag, put it onto a Google spreadsheet so that I can, so that you know if someone tweeted or something like that. If you, yeah, you wanted to do that without having to track it individually. So I, I right, know. like clicking on the hashtag. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't know if that was used, but maybe, yeah. maybe it was. There, yeah, there are little things like that that could help. I'm curious. I was having a little trouble distinguishing the difference between passive, limited, complex, and real-time interactions in e-learning. If you could hmm. expand on that a little bit. they Some of them seemed similar to me, and I was having trouble figuring out what real-life examples would be for those types of learning environments. I think I would probably put this more on a continuum than on like discrete levels because I think it makes it look like they're a lot more different than they really are. That's what it seemed like to me. Okay. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, I think your instinct is right. I think on the one end, you have kind of the degree of control and immersion immersion that the learner has. And then on on the level four, what they call the level four would be a lot more immersive second life might be part of that something yep that's what i was thinking so i I mean i wouldn't worry about like you're not going to get a question like is this a complex or a real-time interaction (laughs) Um, (laughs) like to me those kind of distinctions are not that important but more important to think about like to what degree or what affordance this learning environment has Mm -hmm. okay there was one quote that discussed the disadvantages of on the same topic, the like levels of creating 
an online course. Um, and it basically said the more in-depth you go, the more time and even cost it could take. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, one quote that stuck out to me was one hour of teaching could need a hundred hours of development. So as the mm. professor of an online course, I'm just curious how long roughly does, did it take you to develop, uh, let's say like one lesson plan? And do you think it would level out with the time it would take for you to develop an in-person uh, lesson plan? I wasn't sure what they counted towards the time. When you think about like the cumulative time versus designing something from scratch, there's also a difference between like, like for this course that I've taught before, do I count the time I, I already put in or do I just count it towards what I had to do to get this class into effect? So that's kind of one one side of it. I also was wondering, not to deflect your question, but I was also wondering, 100 hours, I'm assuming you mentioned it because it sounds like a lot, but I was thinking like, if you ask a teacher how much time they put in, I don't think that's like unreasonable amount of time. Like I think if you yeah. add it up, it'll add to that pretty easily. Mm-hmm. I was also trying to thinking like 100 hours in an eight hour week is like less than two weeks, which is not that much time. Also, the other thing is I don't know whether the time it takes for me to build something into Moodle, let's say, because Moodle can be hard to deal with. Like um, the time it takes me to put something into a quiz, let's say, is time, (laughs) but it's not like, it's time because Moodle requires that much time. It's not so much, I wouldn't say it's time well spent. And also like also with reading and picking the readings, um, you know, I could read several things and I, there might be readings I don't have you read, but you know, that's also time. I mean, in general, I think the time they, they, I'll take their word for it. I think the point they have to make is when you get to the level, like all these levels are so silly, but when you get into the, like the 700 hour to one ratio, I think they're considering like the programming time, like how long it takes to program. Cause like in level three, you're talking about simulations and games and kind of those immersive environments, right? And I think that seems reasonable. Like it, does, it would take a lot more time to program these things. And and then the question is, is it worth spending that much time, 700 hours to teach a unit of something, right? So that's kind of like my takeaway. Like to me, like 100 hours seems, doesn't seem like a lot just because of the amount of time I tinker with things. I think that's like another reason why it's super important to have teachers who feel that they're supported in learning how to be digitally literate. Because if they're supposed to use these online learning management systems like Moodle, they need to, like you said, it's kind of difficult to tinker with sometimes. So I feel like that's another reason why it's super important for schools to need to, to um, supply their teachers with the tools that they need to be able to do that. Yeah, I was just curious. I, I assumed that they were going to level out, but they made it sound so dramatic almost. I was like, wow, there's so much more effort that goes in. But I was just curious if it's actually um just like the same thing or because I, I can assume with like the embedding hyperlinks, et cetera, putting in the voice threads and everything. I feel like when teachers also put PowerPoints and stuff up just for the visuals and audio in the classroom, it's kind of the same thing. You're just putting it on a board as opposed to putting it in a little page. I mean, it does level out in that I'm not kind of reinventing the class every time. The topics and everything, the flow, the sequence, all those things are kind of set that I could switch things in and out. So it does level up in that sense. Then the question is the other things that I, I mean, I started, I stopped kind of spending time on like silly things that don't matter. Like I used to have like a, a different photo for every voice thread. And <laughs> I'm just like, this is not a good use of my time. I have to hunt for mm. a photo that goes with a theme or whatever. Like, no, yeah, that's, that could take a long time. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going <laughs> to... The creative commons. Yeah. So it's also about like, how do you spend the time? 
Cool. There was a question somewhere on Web 3.0. Oh, yes, yes. So I'm interested in if you think that we have entered Web 3.0 or how far off we are for it to be commonplace, because I feel like Web 2.0 has been something that I've known or I've heard thrown around a lot since I've been in college um, in grad school, but Web 3.0 is kind of a new thing for me and it was new for me to learn about. Mm. Um, so I'm just wondering how you feel about that. I don't think Web 3.0 has a very stable definition yet. I think the reason yeah. is that. I think if you think of Web 2.0 being more participatory where you know the consumer producers have a cl closer relationship kind of thing, um, mm -hmm. and then Web 3.0 based on their definition and the other ones that I kind of picked up on um, is more about intelligent tools, right? where you have some application that has a better understanding of what you're asking, that kind of thing, like intelligent assistance, all that stuff. Which, so if, if that's the way it's being defined, then I think it's starting to. I, I don't think it's out there yet. Mm -hmm. Like in the online learning class that I taught and I'm going to teach again, like I have students design a chatbot, which is basically something that can do like a Q&A and stuff like that. Yeah. That would be a very basic version of that. I, I know that there are people who like teach computer science and they would have a chatbot that is like good enough that students actually don't know it's a chatbot. They think it's a TA. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that's also kind of out there. I think the, they're not easy enough for it to be mass, like used by a large number of people. So right. I think maybe if those tools become more and more accessible and or as more and more people become familiar with programming, I think that could be, again, I'm not huge on these categories. Like I don't think they are, I don't think they are that important in terms of mm -hmm. like discrete categories and where we are and all that stuff. Right. <laughs> I was a little confused at the section by fir at first, but um, yeah, no, I, it, that definitely cleared things up and I do agree. Um, I think that 3.0 is what confused me the most because I wasn't really sure exactly what it was because I knew it was supposed to be the semantic web software and then the mobile and the immersive. But um, I think it was supposed to just be like, this is what's ahead. Like this, yeah. it's always like advancing. This is what's next. That's what I gathered mm -hmm. from I it. mean, they also mentioned augmented and reality and virtual reality. And I right. think that's also something that is a largely a cost thing. It's not exactly cheap, but it, you can get a 360 degree camera. It's not thousands of dollars. It's a couple mm -hmm. hundred dollars. One, actually. So there you go. I mean, you can yeah. have something <laughs> like that and you can do interesting with it. You can have people in simulations and put on VR glasses. Huh. And, um, I, ca I can see that being a really interesting experience for history. For like again, it's more like can you spend? And it kind of goes to the ratio thing that you brought up, Brooke, about how much time it takes to do something. And hopefully, that's mm -hmm. also like if you think about how long it used to take to edit a video versus how long it takes now. You can shoot that camera. Yeah. If the technology can go, can simplify or become as available in the same way, I think that would be really interesting. If you can imagine like plopping a student into a virtual environment. Oh, oh. Um, okay. that, that kind of thing might be kind of interesting. And speaking, I think there was a virtual world, there is a virtual world of Pride and Prejudice or something. Oh, oh wow. Um, <laughs> that something is really like cool. that. I don't know. That's what I heard. Immerse um, yourself in learning. <laughs> it's, it's buggy though. It's buggy. But, it's, uh, huh? but I, I mean, I can see that being an interesting way to experience a yeah or, that's pretty or, cool or even a setting if it's in a very foreign or you know bizarre setting yeah yeah i have seen um i haven't taken them but my peers have taken them and i've heard about them some courses um whether they're like a global course or not they'll take 
like a virtual reality walkthrough of um i think there was one for athens so they mm-hmm. went to like wow um and they just took a bunch of shots and they basically made you know when you go to google maps and you click on like the mm-hmm. walkthrough mm-hmm. it was kind of like that so it was more immersive and they put like little dialogue boxes for cool. the characters and stuff so um it's it's crazy how advanced yeah it's become but it's really cool yeah so before we go, I just kind of wanted to bounce some ideas off of you, if you can, about the podcast, which is like, this is the second time I've done this. And I like, I have a lot of fun, but like next time, maybe to keep the podcast, but not have it like a student, not to have students necessarily come on and talk, even though I think this conversation is great. I think it might be more interesting to talk to like a professor and make that, so obviously they're not to, in other words, to drop this as an assignment, you have a professor or teacher or whoever come in and talk less frequently, but also possibly to tie that into the case study. So um, I could have a professor come on and talk and then that professor would maybe end with a case study um, would talk about a particular situation that they are having. And then when you listen to it or when the students listen to it, they would post it like as voice thread responses, let's say, and then I would put it into an, you know, a follow-up episode and then the professor would come back and say what they think of it. That would be really I think that really sounds, yeah, that sounds cool. It's another creative way to get people engaged in something that they're learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think adding the extra element of case study discussion would be super helpful as well. Yeah, just because I think this conversation type of thing would be really great for like a class like the technology and society class where the, the topics mm-hmm. are very complex and abstract and all that, and all that stuff. I think for this class, it's relatively straightforward. Like you can obviously have a lot of conversation about it, but I feel like just to evolve it a little bit, also because we have the same topics every semester. And I think, I'm not sure if that's kind of the most interesting thing. Um, Hmm. But yeah. I think for tech and society, it would be really cool having taken that class. Yeah, I think that would work better in that class than this one. Like, It was like totally conversation-based the whole time, that class too. So that's like the perfect environment for it. Right. Well, I guess that wraps up our episode. Thank you both for coming on. And uh, Thank you. Thank you. yeah, have a good weekend. You too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.